Good morning, everybody. Hello. Uh, welcome again. Just want to say a special welcome to those of you who are new or what I like to call new adjacent, you know, like if you've been around Soma for a while, but it still doesn't quite feel like home yet. Me too. Let's connect afterwards. Uh, we'd love to get you plugged into community. Uh, two gifts that God gives us as we practice the way of Jesus for the life of the world are grace right? Because we're all imperfect people on a journey towards a more full expression of who God created us to be. And so he gives us grace and he gives us community uh, because God never intended this to be something that we do alone. And look, if you've ever tried uh, to just effort lasting change and transformation in your life through sheer willpower, uh, then you know that we need more than that. That's why New Year's resolutions Last on average, what, like three to four weeks? And why the gyms are a little bit more empty this month than they were last month, perhaps? Uh, And so as we seek to practice the way of Jesus, from wherever we're starting from, whether this is day one or year 50, God meets us in that space with the grace that we need and an invitation to journey together. And we'd love to be on that journey with you. Fill out a Connect card, drop it at the Connect table, talk with one of our staff, our welcome team. They're the ones wearing the sweet lanyards uh, out in the gallery after the service. Uh, we'd love to be in conversation with you. Uh, today, we're talking about a lot of things. We're talking about identity, and we're talking about ambition, and expectations, and assumptions, successes, and failures, and how all of those collide in Jesus's invitation to two sets of brothers to follow him and learn to fish for people. Uh, If you take one thing with you today, I hope it's this. It's to talk to Jesus about where he's calling you to go from this. You you know what this means? Like those areas in your life where you feel like you're just holding on, the things that you feel like you've just got to keep a handle on. Uh, Where Jesus is calling you to go from this to this. Uh, I just want to invite us to do that even right now this morning. Just feel the physical sensation. Hold your hands out. Yeah, for real, we're doing this. Get ready. Put your hands out, grip your fist, you're riding your motorcycle, whatever, uh, and then release and turn your hands up. Feel the release. We've been in a series working verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew, and our passage for today actually wraps up the first little chunk, which is like uh, the preamble, the context, and foundation setting for the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's the super famous teaching of Jesus, which starts in chapter 5. And so what I'd love to do quickly here at the start of our time together is retrace our steps a little bit and pull some of those threads through into what we're talking about today. Uh, Our teaching team had the gift of being able to sit down with Dr. Jonathan Pennington. Uh, And by sit down, I mean we were sitting down when we were on the Zoom call with him. Uh, He's a New Testament scholar, seminary professor. He's also a pastor of spiritual formation at his local church. Uh, And that intersection of scholarship and pastor's heart, you know what I mean by that, right? Deep, uh, but practical, uh, heady, uh, and heartfelt. Uh, It just flows out of everything that he said. And when we're talking about how to approach these passages in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, he said to read for transformation, not just information. You know, not just read the passage and extract information about the life of Jesus from it, like a biographical archaeologist, uh, but to come open to the passage reading us, to engage with the life and ministry of Jesus so that our lives start to look and sound and feel like that too. And that fits right in with how we define what it means to be a disciple here at Soma, right? Learning to be with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, 
in doing what Jesus did. See, the way that we approach these gospel passages opens up the way that the Holy Spirit can use them in our lives. And so we come to these passages not to just get more information about Jesus's life, but to let them press on us, right, and lead us into the conversations that God wants to have with us for our good and for what God is doing in the world. And the other thing Dr. Pennington said was to read vertically. You know, Matthew's gospel is like a delicious puff pastry, right? It's got layer on top of layer, and that Matthew is building an image of Jesus and what he came to do that builds through all of the different stories and teachings layering on top of each other. So each passage is best understood in its vertical context, what's come before it, and even looking ahead at what happens right after. So what's happening so far? What might Matthew want us to bring with us as we look at our passage today? Like Matthew's got a lot of energy around sharing the message that Jesus is the promised messianic king who came to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And from the opening verses of his gospel, Matthew is prodding. He is stoking our curiosity about what in the world kind of king this is and what kind of kingdom he's got. I mean, just think about what's happened so far, right? Uh, we learn Jesus' family tree is the right one for the promised Messiah, right? He's from the line of David, uh, but Matthew lays it out in a way that highlights some of the biggest failures in Israel's history and, and includes even people who weren't ethnically Jewish in the genealogy in chapter 1. Uh, and then Jesus, the king, uh, was a refugee in Egypt, and when it was safe, his family settled in Nowheresville in a place whose name literally translates stick town. His ministry kicks off by getting baptized by some other guy, right? And then this dove-like thing lands on him, this voice from heaven speaks, and then he gets shipped to the wilderness to get tempted by Satan. Uh, and all these things, they serve a purpose, right? They're fulfilling Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah and redeeming Old Testament failures of the nation of Israel, right? They're building the first layers of the picture. And they're also raising all sorts of questions about what kind of king and kingdom this is. So we're four chapters in and already seeing our need to be willing to be surprised, to hold our assumptions and expectations about kings and kingdoms where they come from, what they do, uh, to hold those assumptions and expectations open-handedly. And this picks right up as our passage opens today. If you've got a copy of the scriptures with you, go ahead and turn or tap your way back to Matthew chapter 4. Again, there's a red Bible in your row that you're welcome to grab. We're on page 857. This is right after Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days. Verse 11, it's like Satan leaves after failing to tempt Jesus. The angels come and minister to him. It's wonderful. And then verse 12 hits us with this. Take a look. Uh, when he heard that John, this is John the Baptist, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Uh, so John the Baptist, right, important person, is the one who's preparing the way for Jesus. He gets arrested, uh, and Jesus doesn't launch some sort of epic search and rescue mission. He withdraws to Galilee, uh, which is interesting on a few levels. 
Right? He doesn't go towards Jerusalem, towards the center of the Jewish world. He goes away. He goes towards obscurity, towards the land, and we'll get to this in a little bit, of the outsiders. Matthew highlights geography because it helps fill in some interesting context. See, Galilee would have flagged some things for some people in that time as they heard this. Uh, you know the scene in uh, New Hope? That's right, Star Wars. Uh, when Obi-Wan and Luke are on that clifftop overlooking Moss Eisley Spaceport, and Obi-Wan goes, you'll never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. Uh, it's like a portrait of Galilee, Okay. Uh, these outside territories were like breeding grounds for revolutionaries. Just 14 years earlier, right, there was a major, major, major revolution against the Roman occupation of Jerusalem and Israel's territories that originated in Galilee. Uh, you can see how that could start to create some assumptions about why Jesus is going there. John got arrested. Right, so it's revolution time. Uh, but Matthew's like, not so fast. Look, starting in verse 14. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali. Along the road by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So Matthew is pulling a thread from the non-Jewish people in the genealogy in chapter 1, right? We're reading vertically. And so he's pulling this thread forward that God is doing something bigger than just the Jewish people. The theologian and scholar Dale Bruner writes that this is God's initiative towards those never considered. Isn't that beautiful? And lest we miss the scale of what's happening here as Jesus goes to Galilee, Matthew plunks Isaiah 9 right down in the middle of this section. Right? This is the fulfillment theme that we see over and over. Matthew's energy towards showing Jesus as the promised messianic king. But listen to the scale here, right? the cosmic size and scope of what's happening. See, Jesus, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus' kingship isn't just some political repositioning or correction of a flawed system, right? This is light and darkness level stuff. This is creation language. We see repeatedly in the Old Testament light and fire as symbols of God's presence. And Matthew's saying, this is that thing. That Jesus is the light of God's presence shining on those living in darkness. And just like God began the creation of the world by speaking light into darkness, we see God beginning the recreation of all things as Jesus' light dawns on those living in the land of the shadow of death. In this section, we see Jesus withdraw to a place that's going to raise some questions and create some assumptions and Matthew sets what could have seemed so arbitrary, right, so insignificant, this trip to Galilee into the context of cosmic scale renewal of creation. Okay, I'm so struck by the fact that sometimes we reduce what God is doing in our lives and in the world around us down so small, don't we? We just think he's kind of like low-key running away to Galilee, and Matthew helps us pause here and reconsider and reminds us of what Paul will write later in Ephesians 3, that this 
is a God who does abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. And as we're reading vertically, right, all of this gives context to verse 17, gives texture to Jesus's message, which is word for word the same as John the Baptist, right? But it's escalated now. It hits different. Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Like when we hear this stuff, we're supposed to go, this is light bursting into darkness level stuff. This is renewal and recreation on an all-encompassing scale. What kind of king? And what kind of kingdom is this? And we'll watch the disciples, uh, who we haven't met yet, but we'll in just a minute. Uh, We'll watch them wrestle with this question over and over again. What kind of king and what kind of kingdom is this? Because it's hard not to import our own assumptions and expectations based on our experience with earthly kings and with earthly kingdoms. You know, that lesson that we learn along the way that aligning with the right kingdom is a way towards power or towards influence, a way towards prestige or towards status, a guarantee of safety or security or ease, or comfort. We can even do this with the way that we practice our faith. I don't know where it came from, but I'm having to unwind from this equation of do the right thing for the right reasons, and things will work out like you want it to. Anybody else recognize that pattern in your life? I recognize it most in myself when there's something beyond just disappointment when things go differently than I wanted them to. Uh, like there's this like entitlement that sits underneath it that sounds like I did these things the way that you wanted me to. Now, why didn't it go the way that I wanted it to? See, what I've learned is that we can practice in our faith, we can practice our faith in a way that's really aimed at trying to feel a sense of control in our lives because we think that that means that we know how things are going to turn out. I know this because I do this. So what kind of king and what kind of kingdom is this? And we'll see the disciples wrestle over and over with that question. And as we work through this gospel, we will have lots of opportunities to examine our own assumptions about the kind of king Jesus is and our expectations of what his kingdom is like and to hold them open-handedly for God to shape. As Jesus withdraws to Galilee of the Gentiles to not start a military revolution to free Israel from Roman occupation after John the Baptist gets arrested, we run into these four categories of assumptions already. Where God is at work. Who God is working through. What kind of work God is doing. And the scale God is working at. Like, if you're a grammar person, uh, sorry to dangle the preposition on that last one. I don't mean to make you go twitchy. <laughs> we bring all sorts of assumptions and expectations to just these four, right? They're just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, we'll know we're doing it when we start to rephrase them to include the word should, where God should be at work, who God should be working through. 
what kind of work God should be doing. Try to fix it. The scale at which God should be working. There we go. As we keep reading in Matthew, we'll see the most religiously educated people miss the fact that the Messiah they longed for was standing right in front of them because he didn't fit their framework. What's your framework? As we engage these passages for transformation, as we spend time with Jesus and by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, we start to orient our lives around the way that he lived and what he taught. Let's hold those assumptions and expectations open-handedly and ask God to speak into them. What kind of king is this? What kind of kingdom is this? Jesus is actually going to directly address those things in just a few more verses. Right? Matthew is this master storyteller, and he's been building that tension for the last four chapters. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we start to get a clearer picture of God's kingdom, you know, what it's like, who it's for, what actually makes it good news. And as this tension builds, Matthew gives us two vignettes, two snapshots as the final buildup to the Sermon on the Mount. These are the last pieces Matthew sets before us before we get to the first major teaching of Jesus. Let's see what invitations they have for us today and how they prepare us for what we will hear when Jesus talks about his kingdom up on that hillside. Let's take a look back at chapter 4, starting in verse 18. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Right, we're reading this vertically. We're reading this in context. So this could read, a light who sh- the light who shines on the land of those living in the shadow of death was taking a walk on the beach. And, and take a look at the back half of this verse. They were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Right? Matthew is drawing our attention to the connection between the net and the fact that they're fishermen. The net is a physical, tangible representation of their profession. Right? It's hard to be a fisherman without a net. Look at verse 19. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Uh, do you ever wonder what Jesus' voice was like when he called them? Uh, in my mind, I have, like, Cloud Mufasa from The Lion King, right? <laughs> Simba. Like that. Uh, to get a little grammary, just for a second, uh, the tense of the verb follow here is present and future. Right? In other words, it's now and ongoing. Not follow me a time, but be following me. This is Jesus' first invitation to anybody in Matthew's gospel. I think it's really interesting because of what it contains and what it doesn't. Right, what do you see? And what do you not see? There's no mention of heaven, death, hell, sin, or salvation. It's follow me. Be following me, and I'll help you do what I'm doing. Because Jesus is fishing for people too. Again, we hear echoes of what it means to be a disciple. Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. Do what Jesus did. It's almost like it comes right out of the scriptures. (laughs) 
Immediately, verse 20, immediately, they left their nets and followed him. If you spend much time in the Gospels, this feels very marky. You know, where everything is immediately this happened, and then immediately they go over here, and then immediately some other thing happens. And this verse feels like that, but that's not how Matthew structures his narrative. So this is a signal for us to pay attention. There's something happening here. Their response is immediate, and it's tangible. They left their nets, and they followed him. And those nets are the tangible symbol of their profession, the way they provided for themselves and for those in their care uh, that informs some of their position within their community. And they left their nets and they followed Jesus. And they weren't the only ones. Verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. Right, these are the sons of thunder. Right, which makes them sound super tough. Uh, but they're actually the ones whose mom asked Jesus if they can get special seats in his kingdom. Right? You want to talk about assumptions and expectations, right? Uh, but here they're in a boat with their dad preparing what? More nets. It's like maybe Matthew wants us to catch on. Huh? Nets, catch on. Tough crowd. It hit better at the nine. I don't know. It's like maybe Matthew wants us to catch on to something here. Uh, Jesus calls them, presumably in the same way that he called Simon and Andrew just a bit ago. And look at verse 22. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Again with the immediately. Uh, and this time it's not just nets. It's their boat. And it's their father, too. See, these are physical, touchable symbols of a lot of what made them them, or the way that it's easy to think about who we are, the tools of their trade, which were the means they provided for themselves and their family that helped build out their place within their community. And with James and John, they even leave their family system and assumptions that they would continue in the family trade and contribute that way. I mean, when you stop and think about it, it's a lot. So how does this passage continue to fill out the portrait of what kind of a king Jesus is? What does it start to tell us about what his kingdom is like? The first thing I want us to notice is Jesus' posture. You know, some extra background info that helps fill this out a bit is the dynamic that Jesus is a rabbi, right? He's a scholar. He's a teacher of the Jewish law. And usually the only way that you got to be a rabbi was to apprentice to another rabbi. And so to do that, you, you know, tidy yourself up. You would present yourself at the school where they were teaching uh, or where they were and hope that you got picked, right? But that's not what we see here in this passage. Jesus comes to them in a system built on hierarchy and honor, Jesus, the honored one, seeks them out. What kind of king is this? What's his kingdom like? What humility. The Messiah king is a humble rabbi. And the second thing I want us to notice is Jesus' presence, where he physically meets them. 
It's not in the synagogue or in the temple, but in the physical, tangible markers of their vocations, social roles, and community and family identity. Right? And that starts to mess with the ways that we like to compartmentalize our lives. Uh, do you ever run into someone from one part of your life in an unexpected place? It's like when you're a kid and you see your teacher some, like outside of school at the grocery store, and you're like, what? <laughs> you don't live at school? Some of you who are teachers do live at school, basically. <laughs> uh, thank you for the wonderful, beautiful work that you are doing. It's so easy for us to compartmentalize our lives, right? To have our home self, uh, our friends self, uh, our other group of friends self, if you know what I mean, our romance self, our work self, our back home with our family of origin self, and our spiritual self. And Jesus goes in all sorts of messes that up by meeting Simon and Andrew and James and John with their nets and their boats and their dad by the water. It's here that we start to get a glimpse of the true nature of Jesus' invitation. Remember, follow me is a present and ongoing grammatical tense. The invitation is to keep on coming, to keep on following this isn't a one-time choice, but a day-by-day, moment-by-moment apprenticeship that doesn't just meet Jesus in the temple or synagogue, but that touches every area of our lives. And as we welcome Jesus as king in all of us, that begins to produce in us righteousness, wholeheartedness, wholeheartedly doing the will of God. Be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. Do what Jesus did. It's really hard for a compartmentalized heart that keeps God in a container or keeps other things in a container for God not to touch. To be wholehearted to wholeheartedly live out and live into what God wants for our lives. Jesus is a humble king. He's a humble rabbi who meets us right in the middle of all the things that are so easy to compartmentalize in our hearts. And he says, follow me. And can we just talk about the disciples' response here? Honest take, I think it's kind of annoying Right? Immediately, they're like, bye, Nets, bye, Boat, bye, Dad, let's go. I mean, where's the struggle to let go? Where's the grappling with trust? Like, does this guy have my good in mind? Is this really the way to flourishing and fullness of life? I mean, did Jesus introduce himself even? <laughs> Two things on that. This is a picture of how powerful it is when God calls us. Like maybe you've had that experience before where you're like, I don't quite know why or what this means or all the details. But yeah, I got him in. Uh, which is connected to the second thing. Uh, we know from the rest of the story uh, that these guys don't really have a full grasp on what they're saying yes to. They have a lot of assumptions and expectations they have to get unwound. They argue over who's the greatest. 
They're shooing kids away from Jesus. Fighting over who gets the best seat when he takes over. Asking when he's going to come in his power. Simon, who is called Peter in this passage, will even rebuke Jesus for telling them plainly that it's going to die because it didn't fit Peter's framework. They didn't really have a full grasp on what they were saying yes to. And I hope that's comforting in some way, because that's the journey, isn't it? Haven't we all been there at some point? In many ways, probably still are. Follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. The call to follow Jesus is an invitation to continually choose whole life encompassing apprenticeship to keep on walking as he walks, to keep on living as he lives, and not for a sense of control or of understanding what will happen in our own lives, but for the good and the flourishing of other people. And what we see in this passage today is that means asking God to help us take a long, hard look at our nets, our boats, our fathers, all those real, tangible, touchable, experienced things that are so easy to allow to make us us and to hold them open-handedly and to welcome Jesus as king in every area of our lives. That's where Jesus meets Simon, Andrew, James, and John and says, follow me. That's a lifelong journey. That's why the invitation is in an ongoing tense. So where is Jesus calling you from to follow him today? As we move towards some space to breathe for a moment and sit with that question, I want to give us a couple of things to hold on to as we finish our passage today. Uh, Jesus' invitation follow me. It looks different in different seasons and stages of life, right? Because those symbols uh, that we allow to make us us, uh, they shift and they change over time. The figurative nets, boats, and fathers of our teens and 20s tend to be different than those of our 50s and 60s. Just as the figurative nets, boats, and fathers of our seasons of ease in the world are different from those in our times of sorrow and grief, when we've been hurt or experienced trauma, uh, truth be told, we've usually got some kinds of nets from the best of times and from the worst of times. And let's look at the final verses of this passage and let them speak to us. Matthew 4, starting in verse 23. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, in the paralytics, and he healed them. 
Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. What kind of king is this? What kind of kingdom does he have? That follow me in the very next verses meant a move down the social scale for the disciples. This was not an invitation towards greater influence or status, but into service among those looked most down upon. This wasn't cool. They didn't get street cred for this. There was no Instagram to humble brag, snap a photo with all these people and tag it, hashtag blessed to serve. And for those of us doing well, for those of us upwardly mobile, are we willing to question how attached we are to that? Are we willing to follow Jesus down the social and status ladder when the momentum of our lives is moving us up? As Matthew adds another layer to the portrait of what kind of king Jesus is, we again see God's initiative towards those never considered. This is Jesus showing us what it means to be king in his kingdom. These are people who are welcome in his kingdom. Uh, if you beat me to my landing point, uh, you might be sitting there going, man, uh, I need to set down some nets that are hard to let go of because uh, they're really awesome. Uh, they make me feel good. They reinforce an image of myself I really like. And some of you may be sitting there saying, man, if you knew the nets I hold, you wouldn't want me here. You wouldn't treat me the same. Can you look at these verses and see that the Messiah King is not just a humble rabbi, but a compassionate healer? The word healer in this passage is multidimensional. It means not just physical healing, but emotional, spiritual, whole person healing. It's actually the root word that we get the word therapy from. And whatever your nets are, Whatever this season of life has been like for you, no matter the victories or the struggles it contains, we can hold them open-handedly. Right? We can answer Jesus' call to follow him. He knows willpower alone isn't enough. That's why he gives us grace and community. He meets us in the real, touchable, experiential markers, what makes us us. He's not waiting at the synagogue for you to clean yourself up, present yourself to him, and hope you get picked. He's at your boat dock, calling you by name and saying, follow me. Before Brandon comes back and leads us through confession and communion, uh, I want to give us a couple minutes to slow down and make space to listen as the Holy Spirit speaks to us. Where is Jesus calling you from to follow him? Maybe that's from some assumptions and expectations about who he is, about his character and nature, about what his kingdom is like, or what he's doing or not doing in your life, in the world around us. 
Maybe he's calling from some of the areas of your heart or your life that you're holding on to. Those tangible, physical, experiential markers that are so easy to define ourselves by, for better or worse. What are your nets this morning? Where is Jesus calling you from to follow him? We pray for us. God, as we enter into just a moment of reflection, I pray you'd give us the gift of knowing your presence with us, your deep love for us, that we have the opportunity to turn towards you only because you ran after us first. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Jesus, would you call us to follow you? Would you meet us with the grace and the community that we need to do so? God, we give you this time, this reflection. Speak to us. Have your way. We love you and pray these things in and for your name. Amen.